0: Today, we have somebody with us that is, everybody in law enforcement knows who Dr. Bill Lewinsky is, but we'd like everybody to get to know him a little bit better and know what he is doing when we talk about the science of police use of force. Dr. Lewinsky, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: So tell us, tell our audience, what is the Force Science Institute?
1: Well, when I first started working in in law enforcement uh, and teaching in what was in essence a university-based police academy, um, we were um, teaching things that people thought were good to teach. But we had no science behind what we were teaching and we had no science behind how we were teaching it. As I progressed through that and working with multiple post committees, uh, I realized that we needed to get a science-based evidence foundation for what we were doing and started doing research. And then in particular, as, uh, as we progressed with that research, it was time to shift it off the university campus and into a research institution. So I'd started with a bit of a research institution on the campus, but, but we needed to really get deeply into understanding the dynamics of circumstance officer officers face and really putting a timestamp to some of those things and using that as a criterion for A, how we pr- how we provide training, because that now becomes a standard. If you study a disease, you now have some sense about what you need to do to cope with it. Same way with problems in the police world. Then we looked at uh, how we might begin to train that into implications for investigations, as tremendous implications for adjudication. So when you really know what's going on with the dynamics and you have measured it, it's very helpful, for instance, for those who are judging an officer to know why a bullet struck at a particular point or how long it took somebody to get to that point. For instance, we've just finished a study with high-speed motion capture systems with people pointing directly back. They're on a treadmill. We've got multiple cameras, high-speed capture systems, feeding data into a software system that's producing an avatar. And they're pointing directly back but 20% of those people from the lumbar area down to the hips would have their back pointed square back. So if a person was to return fire at that point in time, the bullet would enter the lumbar area in a direct back to front uh, path of travel that would appear to indicate that they were no longer a threat to the officer. And yet in essence, at that very point, they'd be firing back at the officer that might be helpful forensically to pe- for people to know. We're looking at how quick is the turn, how quick can people shoot and come back and those sorts of things. And we're using a very modern sort of uh, way of reproducing some of our original stuff. But that's a piece of data that comes out of it. that has tremendous implications for coroners and others who want to speak about what person, what position the person was in at the point they were shot.
0: And you're using You're using extremely um, tech-based science to determine why we do what we do and why the human body reacts the way it does. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Right. Uh, On our recent studies, um, we're not only using high-speed motion capture systems, but we're using accelerometers and gyroscopes. We put 15 of those on, on a human body and assess the dynamics of what they're doing, looking at angular, uh, acceleration issues, angular rotation, and, and the rest of it. And the data download is seven one thousandths of a second. And to, to process all of the data that's going into an Excel spreadsheet, actually one of our people worked with a guy at NASA. and So NASA helped us with the software program to analyze all the data. But, but for instance, uh, people think that a straight uh, thrust, an edge weapon thrust, uh, well, it's complex, it's not easy to block. And it's because of the angular motions of that, of that action, which we have discovered. For instance, a straight thrust measured with these high speed capture systems, um, it takes a 10th of a second. The a straight tenor-
0: thrust of a knife, right? Or an ice pick or a by a suspect toward a police officer.
1: Well, hey. if we look at just a straight thrust, because the okay. iceberg stab is somewhere in the realm of fifteen to 18 one hundredths of a second. To give you a comparison, Usain Bolt, when he started out of the starting box, when he broke the world record, his reaction time to the starting gun was 18 one hundredths of a second. Okay. And almost all of the edge weapon attacks, hand motions, are under 18 one hundredths of a second. So even the fastest person on the face of the earth could not block an attack if it's really delivered at a high level of speed. But to get back to the importance of angular motion, if an edge weapon comes this way, you can block it in a variety of different ways. But if the elbow comes out here and begins to rotate this way, so the thrust is more in this action. If you block from the inside, you actually bring it into yourself. If you block from the outside, it's a very, so there's, There are implications here for training and defensive reaction and reading. Anyway, it gets very involved, but we're trying to really delve into and using the latest science possible to really assess threats to then help other people understand, but more importantly, to help officers better prepare. Because from what we know at this point in time, we give you the data published in peer reviewed journals, including the highest rated journal in the world in ergonomics, Uh, that what we're currently teaching police officers is simply not effective for edge weapon defense.
0: So let's talk about that because the, uh, you know, a couple of the latest very high profile police shootings have involved um, suspects with edged weapons and when you look at the the, uh, body cam or you look at the cell phone video, uh, people, you know, our citizens say, why, you know, gosh, that guy was 10 feet away, why did you have to shoot him? Why do we have to shoot people who are trying to attack us with an edge weapon, doctor?
1: Well, we're really looking not only at shooting, but we're looking at every possible thing that we can, we can do, including if you can contain and control, if you can establish your rapport, if you can uh, influence in some way, then you might not have to, but, but depending upon the circumstance, once it evolves to an actual threat, and the officer no longer has the ability to contact or influence somebody, uh, what is the threat distance and, uh, and threat time and action? And we know, for instance, that uh, edge, edge weapons are really dangerous. Uh, four times more uh, people in the U.S. are killed by edge weapons than are killed by rifles, all sorts of rifles. So it's, it's much more dangerous than what people are assuming. They say, oh, he only had a knife, why did you have to shoot him? Well, we're not arguing for shooting, but we are arguing that an edge weapon is extremely lethal, um, meaning deadly, right. uh, and, and we, we can't ignore that. And, and so to say it's a, uh, it's a not fair comparison is really not very empirically accurate. But we've looked at time to, uh, to step, for instance, step and slash, and I know that most people in looking at um, uh, at edge weapons attack refer to Dennis Tuler's 21 foot rule. And Tuler did a, a dynamite service by talking about um, action, motion, response. Uh, and he was the first person to really begin to look at what it is that people are doing, how they're doing it. Unfortunately, people think edge weapon attacks now arrive at 21 feet. But most the weapon attacks are in the living room, they're in the kitchen, they're in the hallway coming out of the bedroom. They're in a variety of circumstances and the distance that close are really very short distances. So we have measured that for instance. We've measured that within um, is about a third of a second, a person will step forward three feet in a third of a second and be able to simultaneously slash and cut up to five feet in a third of a second. Now, officers think reactionary gap, they're safe at five to six feet. But at five to six feet, they can be cut in a third of a second. Three feet step and about a two foot reach and a slash. Um, and um, if, if, they're, if they're out further than that, I'll give you another comparison, within six tenths of a second, the person will close, and we're talking average, the average person will close seven feet and be able to slash out to nine feet. So two thirds of a second, I'll give you a comparison. It takes me about a half a second to say one thou. One thousand one is one second. Each uh, syllable is a quarter of a second. So if I say one thou, that's a half a second. So in just over one thou, someone has closed seven feet and slashed another two. So it's out to a nine foot threat. And if you begin to look at that, and you look at what we're currently teaching officers, sweep and disengage, step aside, we need to look at what, how can officers do that? And when we get to academy training, and you remember your days in the academy, uh, this was all done without uh, duty boots and 20 pounds of duty gear. And an exterior carrier vest that transfers most of the weight up to your upper body. So when you're moving offside, you're now much more imbalanced than you've you've ever been. And we've measured how long it takes an officer to step offline because sweep and disengage is one of the ways officers are taught to deal with an edge weapon attack. We've measured how long it takes to step offside with 20 pounds of gear in duty boots. And the first step takes almost nine-tenths of a second to step offline.
0: So that argument that we hear very often, why didn't the police officer just get out of the way or disengage or move aside? You're saying the science doesn't, doesn't make that a, a real option. Is that right? Our
1: publication in the Journal of Applied Ergonomics, which is uh, the highest rated journal in the world in ergonomics, so the data's good, it's really peer-reviewed, tells us that in the time it takes an officer to step offline, someone can charge 11 feet, So, when they step offline as a way to kind of deke the person out, all the person will have to do is change direction (laughs) and come at where they now are. It's not an effective technique. We need to look at better better ways of doing what it is that we're teaching officers, but there's no question that we do not understand the threat. And to shoot to wound in those circumstances is really, uh, that's not a good suggestion either.
0: Let me ask you about that. So we hear a lot of, uh, you know, uh, why don't you just shoot them in the leg? Why don't you shoot the knife or gun out of their hand? Can you explain to people why that's a terrible idea?
1: Well, we've assessed the skill of officers who are leaving an academy after learning firearms instruction, the way we teach firearms instruction. And at the end of their FTO program, And this is traditional sort of instruction. And by the way, we've measured this in three countries. So it's not just the United States. It's Canada and the UK as well. A standard method of training police officers, when we compare them with someone who's never had a gun in their hand in their life, at common gunfight distances, the officer is 10% more accurate than a civilian. Do
0: you think that's because we're not training
1: enough? We... We train in a fashion, and, and some of your civilian audience may, may do the same thing. Uh, they, they do their training in a block. They go to a range, they, they fire 300 rounds, say 250 rounds, and they do that every four, six, or eight months. There's almost no skill acquisition. In fact, when you, when you take something and you train it on a block, it appears you create the illusion of learning. Uh, but it's the fastest way for learning to erode. So there, there's no stick to it. The, the, lay, the training doesn't stick. It's, it's, not, it's not as effective as we did something different. So A, officers are not these magnificent shooters that, <laughs> that television has created uh, the illusion about. Um, and, and B, uh, we have taught them to shoot in circumstances that are very different than real world. For instance, the, uh, in the exercise phys, uh, psychomotor area, um, training on a range is called a closed skill in a closed environment, meaning you don't have to move very much and the target is not moving and doesn't shoot back. But in a real world, you're likely moving. You're likely, in fact, we've done studies in which we've had over 90 some officers. In threatening situations and nobody has been in a standard shooting posture as they were on a range as they're returning gunfire. Uh, we've got a study, we've just finished using stellar arms and gyroscopes again. The startle response from officers when they're first shot at to come up here really distracts going for the gun, significantly impairs what they're doing, slows down their reaction time. It's really kind of, it's, it's very, very different to get in a real world circumstance versus this type of training we provide officers on the range and the person they're shooting at is moving and likely threatening them. So it creates an emotional response that is really different. So it's kind of like teaching someone to hit a ball with, on a tee ball putting them in a real world game and say, now if you hit the ball, you live. And if you miss the ball, you die. <laughs> are we gonna see even the same level of skills as on that tee ball situation? And the, and the answer is no. So we need a much better job in training police officers. And we need to understand that the skills that they bring to a situation are, are not the best that we as a society could provide. We're looking for communication, we're looking for better ways to contain and control and de-escalate. Got it. Because we don't do a very good job at that either. And so we need to, to teach that better. And we need to teach uh, better the technical skills, the mechanical, the, the, the control skills, force skills.
0: So what do we do in the era of, of you know, millions of dollars cut from some police budgets? How do we, how do we fix this issue um, when we don't, we're not going to have the money to spend?
1: I, I don't know what the answer is, but I'll, I'll give you what I, further, I think some of the, the problem is further. One is law enforcement is viewed as a trade. We train it as a trade. It's a profession. It's a clinical profession. Yes. The clinical profession requires assessment, diagnosis, and prescription, some sort of treatment. And that's exactly what officers do. And they have a library of research behind them, and they have a library of skill that could be provided to them if we were to bother to do it if we really cared that law enforcement was a decision-making profession. For instance, in the state of Minnesota, we're very proud about our police training, but it's it's in university-based programs run by criminal justice people who think you change behavior by teaching another course. (laughs) We know that if you wanna make better clinicians, all we have to do is go to the dental hygienists on our campus and they're working in people's mouths and with people's teeth all the time. We go over to the engineering department, we go to the computer science department, we go to the exercise physics program, we go to the chemistry department, and we know that people learn how to work in their profession by lots of hands on application in as near real situations we can get. And then the police world that's decision making, lots of decision making. So for us, that's pretty critical. Secondly, besides having a component to law enforcement we don't currently have, what we need to do is make a decision that as a society, we are no longer going to have our barbers, our cosmetologists, our beauticians, get four times the amount of training as our police officers do <laughs> to buff our nails the correct way. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. If you compare police training to plumbers, my god we are so deficient and we expect expect olympic quality to quote alexis Artwood. we expect olympic quality performance and when they don't do it we blame the human being
0: i look back at my own career i i was a cop for 29 years i don't think i really trained to win a gunfight until i had about 10 years on the job and uh, and i think that's very typical and i you know the, the training varies state to state. We're a very decentralized um, situation in the United States for policing. And uh, so different, you know, you talked about Minnesota, different states have different requirements, but you know, generally speaking um, it's true. Police officers don't get enough training. And again, now we're coming into the era of they're gonna defund us. And one of the first things to go is training.
1: Let me give you another comparison that's even more depressing. We did a study in three countries at the request of the Police Federation of England and Wales. On top of that, we did another three-year study in which we made 10,000 videos on skill acquisition and perishability. Cost us a million dollars. We assessed skill acquisition and perishability in three main state academies. These, These academies are responsible for training almost everybody in their state. We came back to one of them six months later and tested the skills that they had passed on as a class and the average component for a critical, a critical aspect of that skill. Like if you're doing weapon takeaway, you've got, you've got to make contact with the hand or the weapon. And we found that it was 28, 29%. I I mean, the, the skills non-functional. Right. And, and so, There is no question that we need to do. If we expect great performance, we need not to defund. We need to do a much better job at creating the professional and really holding um, the academies and the profession responsible once we provide them with with what they need. And at this point in time, uh, we're not not doing that. And so we we do need to do something really different in, in this profession.
0: What role do you think the, uh, the police unions around the country should be playing in, in, uh, in helping us become that profession that we all want to see happen?
1: Well, I, I think holding to some standards of, of hiring is, is really critical. And I think in some way the unions are, are doing that and, and so are, are the departments because uh, given how poorly we're doing things and yet how successful we are, I mean, the police use of force is what? Less than 1% in all arrest situations? And yet the community, we did, we did a, a survey of eight different universities, 400 students. We've not finished that. The average student believes a cop shoots deadly force one out of five times. They encounter a citizen. I mean, that's <laughs> like they're shooting everybody on the street. And, and, and the reality is the use of force is deadly force is a minuscule fraction, thousands of a percentage of one percent of any use force. so it, you know they have this illusion, but we're getting a pretty good job out of what we're doing right now, and the reason is we hire good people, and and so we we need to adhere to that standards of really hiring as good of people as we can get. In fact, law enforcement officers, one of the few people in the criminal justice profession that can hold up a certificate that says, when I was hired, I was legally sane. That <laughs> you all have to pass a mental health exam. So, so yeah, we've got standards that nobody else in the criminal justice system has. And, and, and then we, if we did a better job of training, but more importantly, it's, it's teaching clin- clinical decision-making. Because any profession in which there's a lot of decisions being made, spends a lot of time between the time when you teach the rules and your time when you teach the skills, how you then teach those skills applicable in a real-world situation. That's a clinical component of a clinical profession, and that's really where, where we need to go with law enforcement. We don't need to defund it. We need to begin to treat cops and the police profession as they really are, as we need them to be, as we expect them to be, and as they want to be.
0: Absolutely, you know it's a. It really it's a profession, and it's it's also a calling. Uh, Doctor Lewinsky, I'm going to have to have you back again because I have about 500 more questions for you. But I appreciate you spending time with us Uh, today.
1: Thank you.
0: It was just wonderful. If you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org.